Welcome to the Business Divorce Roundtable. I'm Peter Mahler, partner at Farrell Fritz in New York City. On this episode, we're going to do something a little different. A couple of months ago, I put out a call on my blog for business divorce stories to give other lawyers, business appraisers, and even business owners a chance to share their experiences litigating or otherwise dealing with business partnership breakups. I'm happy to report in response I got a number of eager participants with some great stories to tell. We're going to start with two stories, and hopefully I'll make this a recurring feature in future podcast episodes. So if you're listening to this and it inspires you to tell a business divorce story of your own, please send me an email at pmahler at farrellfritz.com, and we'll record an interview for a future episode. Our two storytellers today are Tony Katroop and Jeffrey Islander, in that order. Tony is a chartered financial analyst and a principal at Meloria Advisors, a corporate advisory and consulting firm in Rochester, New York. Tony has over two decades' experience in investment banking, business valuation, and financial consulting, including stints Ernst & Young and J.P. Morgan. As you'll hear in a moment, Tony's story is a rather exceptional, and you might even say uplifting one, about his role as a neutral business appraiser in helping two brothers resolve quickly and efficiently what could have turned into a very nasty, prolonged legal battle. It was a challenging assignment for Tony, but he pulled it off skillfully and with aplomb. Speaking of skillfulness and aplomb, second up is my friend and fellow business divorce traveler, Jeffrey Islander, a partner at the New York City law firm Schlamstone and Dolan, who, along with his colleagues at the firm, has handled some very high-profile and precedent-setting business divorce cases, including the Ficus case, Arfa v. Zamir, and the Chu case, to name just a few. And by the way, all of those cases can be found on my New York Business Divorce blog. Another case of Jeff's, which I featured on my blog last month, is the fascinating subject of Jeff's story today. It's the Kassab v. Kassab case, also involving a battle between two brothers over their jointly owned real estate companies, one in LLC, the other a corporation, which culminated with a lengthy trial earlier this year and a most interesting court decision, which you'll hear Jeff talk about in more detail. So without further ado, let's start the Business Divorce Storytelling with Tony Kutrup. Tony, welcome to the Business Divorce Roundtable. Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me. Good well, to talk to you again. Great to have you on. You were one of the first to respond to my solicitation for business divorce stories, and I'm so glad that uh, you did. You have a, a background in uh, valuation, in investment banking, private equity, venture capital, litigation support. So you've had a lot to do in the valuation and buyout arena. I'm sure you have a lot of stories to share. Picked out one for us, and I'd love to hear it. Sure. Yes, I, I sure do have lots of them, but one in particular stands out as uh, one of the one of the ones that really uh, was uh, very acrimonious at, at the start. Uh, whenever you take on a project like this, you know, you have to get yourself ready for the unexpected, and emotions run high, and a lot of times it, it ends up being quite good theater, but Emotions run high in these situations, and you need to remain independent and unemotional because at the end of the day, you have to maintain your independence and you can't be a hired gun because that just creates issues for your clients and nothing good ever comes of that. So in the vast majority of cases, I think the parties just want a fair and equitable arrangement. I don't know that that was the case in this one that I'm about to tell you about. What happened was, there were two brothers 
who owned a business, 50-50, and the business was founded back in the 1930s by the, the father, and it's a well-established distribution company in a very mature market, very strong customer retention. So the two sons bought the company about 30 years ago from the dad. They you know, went merrily along for probably 25 of the last 30 years, but about five years ago, there was a falling out between the brothers, and it was very acrimonious. And so each brother, you know, had their own children, or their, their sons, daughters, or whatever, working in the company, and the cousins would fight. So it was really a bad situation. In my opinion, I thought that the company had ceased to become a creator of value and was becoming a consumer of value just because the two sides didn't talk to each other. One brother, who I, I refer to as sort of Mr. Outside, he was the guy, he was uh, very sales-oriented. He would, if he saw a, a mom-and-pop firm that he could buy, he would just go ahead and write a check. He, if he saw you know, inventory that he could acquire for a nickel cheaper, he would just go ahead and buy it. Now, the other brother was handling all of the accounting, all of the regulatory things. This was a, a, a hazardous product that they were shipping around. It was uh, propane. They're a propane distributor. So as you can imagine, there's a lot of regulation and a lot of licensing and things like that if you're rolling trucks through different states. So the two sides were not talking to each other. They didn't know on any given day what their cash position was because it was, it was just a mess. So what happened was each of the brothers retained counsel and said, get him out of here. You know, they were really, at that point, just just screaming and yelling at each other through their through their advisors through through their attorneys and this was a freight train headed to litigation tony let me ask the events that you're describing preceded your involvement i'm guessing that's correct yes did you ever yes. get a sense whether the falling out was driven by you know differences in business strategies or goals or was it succession related because the, the two brothers were getting older and their children were coming up and there was uh, tension over who would succeed to the you know to the helm of the company the the answer to your question is no the falling out was actually very very personal and it just goes to show that companies are run and inhabited by people and the, you know some of the as i said emotions run high and the two brothers were adamant there's no way I'm selling out to him. You know, this is this is my dad's company, and I'm the owner, and I'm going to run it. And so when I got involved, both attorneys just kind of threw up their hands, and they asked me to come in and say, look, you know, we need to figure out a way out of this. I said, you know, what happens oftentimes is once you put a number down and it starts to mean something in actual dollars, once there's a number, once there's a value for the, for the company, then one side oftentimes will say, you know, I might be a buyer at that price. And the other side, I might be a seller at that price. And so what we did was I got in the middle of these two. Now, they wouldn't talk to each other, so I had to meet with 
one of them on a Monday in a, in a neutral location at their accountant's office, actually. And then I met with the other one on Tuesday at the same place. And the story was the same. He's, he's a thief. He's a liar. He's a, he's a moron. I'm the one that generates all the value here. It was the same, same story from two different perspectives. Tony, uh, I'm interested in a little bit, hearing a little bit more about how you got involved. So there's no litigation. Two brothers have lawyered up. The lawyers with their clients come to a decision that they're going to find a neutral evaluator and be bound by the decision of the neutral or simply to get a, a, a neutral to come up with a number so that everyone can see if they can make a better decision from there. Right. Neither neither side agreed to be bound by it at the beginning. Because I knew both attorneys involved and have worked with them, they came to me of their own volition and said, look, you know, we think a way out of this might be to put a value on this company and then go from there. Now, there was an operating agreement or a shareholders agreement that was written long, long ago that was very, very vague in terms of how that mechanism gets done. So really, it was kind of stumbling in the dark, but the the attorneys involved both agreed that avoiding litigation was probably, you know, the job number one, because that was going to get ugly and drawn out and wouldn't really be good for anyone. Tony, let's get back to, you met with the two separately. Where did it go from there? So I began my analysis of the company and looking at sort of the forensic analysis and looking at where the company has been and then you start thinking about where it's going and in terms of their their expansion they had expanded geographically it really became an exercise in looking at the specifics of the company you really couldn't you know just throw a multiple on this and just say yeah it's worth x times because it, the company really didn't fit the recipe, I'll say. So you, you had to really get into the contracts with the different suppliers and all of the minutiae of this company. And it was, it was hard because, as I said, the one side didn't talk to the other, so their accountants were really in a fix because they couldn't come up with a really good current balance sheet because the company the company didn't uh, handle working capital very well and, and a bunch of other things. So, Tony, this is a company that had been around for a long time and, and was an established distributorship. Did you use multiple approaches to come up with a value for the company? I used both the market approach uh, based on multiples and the income approach based on the discounted cash flow analysis. And the two, the two approaches actually came out with uh, pretty, pretty similar results. And that, that bears out because there was a lot of activity in this industry. Uh, small companies are, are constantly being bought out by larger ones. So there, there was a lot of roll-up activity and you could look to that. A lot of times, uh, companies like this don't necessarily trade at a multiple of EBITDA because what companies are doing, particularly in a distributorship like this, is they're really buying customers. 
did each of the brothers in their council have a, a shadow business appraiser working with them behind the scenes to advise them on your work and your results? Not to my knowledge, but I'm sure in one case, uh, one of the brothers uh, has a son who went through business school and, and whatever, and, and I'm sure was scrutinizing pretty much every uh, every word of my report. And the other brother, I really don't know. If they did have other advisors, they didn't tell me about it. So you were valuing the enterprise on a marketable, uh, going concern marketable basis? That is correct, yes. And that, those were sort of my marching orders going in because what little, what little guidance the, the shareholder agreement had, it did stipulate going concern value, which, which is, is the right way to do so, it. So you did not have to look at marketability or minority discounts? That's correct. That's correct. It was stipulated in the, in the agreement that there were, would be no such discounts or premium. And I guess that makes sense. And uh, I mean, because the discounts are usually so contentious, but if you had the two brothers, each of whom was potentially a buyer or potentially a seller, it makes it easier to uh, throw the discounts overboard. That's correct. I mean, you, you really had a situation where you knew a deal was probably going to close. So the in terms of marketability, well, your market is already there. It would be inappropriate to impose a discount when you know in a real-world situation there wouldn't be one. You come up with a uh, number. It's, it's in a appraisal report. What happens next? Then we start arguing. Once one brother emerges as a buyer and the other brother emerged as a seller, the, the buyer, actually, the, that, that brother, really wanted the company for his son. So once that scenario began to play out, then you, know, you, you start arguing your case if you're one or the other party. So the one brother would say, you know, well, what about these assets? And you know, those get really, uh, those are really interesting conversations because, for example, uh, the one one of the arguments that one of the brothers made was, you know, there's a whole bunch of uh, there's you know, 40, 50 acres of land outside of of our facility here. What about that? And you know, this company because it's a propane distributor, uh, has large underground tanks, and, you know, nobody's going to set up a, a residence or, or a, a, a housing track near a propane tank, or, you know, you're not putting playgrounds next to this. So that land is really kind of unusable, and so my response to that brother was, that land is just sitting there. There's really no value to it. It may actually be a liability because you're paying taxes on it, and if thing, bad things happen on it, you know, you're, you're liable for that sort of uh, event. And the conversation sort of ended right there that he, he didn't push on that too much. Did, did you set up a process so that initially, for instance, you issued the report in a draft form with a comment period, and then each side got back to you with comments? Was it formalized like that or, or no? In this case, yes, we did. We set up a, a comment period, and it was not a long one. I, I believe it was not much more than a week. And so each, each side 
had their chance to review the report and give their comments and questions. And, and at the end of the process, it's funny because we ended up right where we started. The number that I put down at the beginning was pennies from where they ended up actually consummating a transaction. So after you issued your report and you took the comments and maybe you did or didn't um, modify your conclusion at that point, do you step aside at that point or did you remain involved in some respect as the negotiations went forward? I remained involved only as a, a resource or as somebody to answer questions because uh, at that point, the, the two attorneys really, they negotiated the transaction. The, the price was already set. They, they sort of agreed on that price. So really at that point, the, the attorneys were able to get everything in order so that there could be a, a fairly smooth transition from the two ownership model to the, the one ownership. How long did it take from the time you were first contacted by one or both of the attorneys until uh, you issued your your report? I believe it was four or five weeks from wow. from the time. Yeah, it, it was a it was a quick one because again the the two sides were really the the discussions were getting really heated, and we we knew that we needed to get this done quickly or it wouldn't get done at all. Wow, that's an amazing amazingly short period of time. Yes, it was. <laughs> there were there were many long nights and many many difficult moments in trying to get something turned around quickly, but mm. uh, you know, yeah, you, you know, you're you're faced with a situation where the company really was was going to be in in trouble if we didn't get something done because these two brothers were really at each other's throats. Yeah, and I guess one of the advantages you had was that you didn't have, you know, an insider and an outsider with one side controlling all of the company information, putting up resistance to disclosing the information that the appraiser needs to do their job. So I imagine, because I've been in situations where it can take, you know, months and months and months just to get all the information that the appraiser needs. You didn't have that problem, I gather. That's correct. One of the good things about this was that the, the company's accounting firm is one that I've worked with a number of times in the past. I know them very well, and they were very, very good about getting information to me. So it, it, was, it was a very short turnaround in terms of information request and information receipt. You really had sort of the elements lining up in favor of getting this done. You had a relationship with the two attorneys. It sounds like the two attorneys had a good understanding amongst themselves and their clients that there's a better way than jumping into court. You knew the and had worked with the company's accounting firm. You have a lot of pluses there that um, I suspect contributed greatly to getting to the great result that, that ultimately you helped them achieve. That's right. And I think we, we needed every one of those advantages because, the, as, I, as I said before, the, the situation was so acrimonious and so 
as I said before, emotionally charged and just it got very personal. So you were you were even you were exposed to that within that short period of four or five weeks as you were what gathering information and talking to the two owners. Right. And, and I believe, you know, one of the first things I said to the two owners, obviously, I had to say it to them individually because they wouldn't be in the same room. But I said to them, you know, the only way I really know if I did this right is if you're both mad at me. If you both think that, you know, oh, the buyer uh, thinks that, you know, he should be getting a, a lower price and the seller thinks he should be getting a higher price. And uh, if they're both mad at me, I, I probably came up pretty close to what the true value And I really think that's what happened. That's a, 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 just a variation on uh, the lawyer's definition of a good settlement. Both sides walk away equally unhappy. <laughs> that's right. Anyway, uh, thank you. Thank you so much, Tony, for sharing that story. I guess uh, the takeaway is that it is possible when uh, there's goodwill on both sides and common objectives on both sides and people and professionals who are willing to sit down and work things out that a situation that could otherwise result in years of very uh, expensive if not uh, destructive litigation can be avoided. And you, you, it sounds like you succeeded big, t big time in this case. Well, yeah, you know, you have to be able to, at the, at the end of the whole, the whole situation, you have to be able to step back and say, does this make sense? And, you know, the mistake you would have is to get too close to one side or the other or too close to the analysis and, and fall in love with your model. You really have to you know, take into account the the situation, the the attitudes of both sides, and you know, then you have to be fair and fair and balanced, as they say. Tony, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for sharing your business divorce story. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed Tony's story. I know I did. Now we'll move on to our second story coming from attorney Jeff Islander. Jeff, welcome to the Business Divorce Roundtable. Thank you very much, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, you and I have known each other for years. I'm a huge fan of yours personally and a very big fan of your blog. To be here and be part of the blog is, is a great honor. I've known you and, and some of the colleagues at your firm for years. You know, you've been a foot soldier or I should say a general in many a business divorce war. You and your colleagues have been responsible for some really important court decisions in the business divorce arena. So I really am, am very happy to be sitting down with you, and I can't wait to hear your business divorce story. Okay, well, I have a, I have a doozy. So this is actually very recent. It's very hot off the presses. It's less than a week old with actually a new development today. So uh, the case that I'm going to talk about, in one sense, is a very fairly typical case in my practice, which is brother against brother. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's always uh, the siblings. And this is Kassab v. Kassab which was uh, filed in uh, the commercial division in Queens County in 2013. It was originally in front of Judge Kitsis, uh, but when Judge Kitsis retired, it actually was assigned to a non-commercial division judge. And uh, we had an, a bench trial and we received a decision a few days ago. And I want to talk about the unusual aspects of this case, because I think this is a, in, in a sense, it's a typical case because of what it was about and who were fighting with each other. On the other hand, the case had unusual aspects. So. Just very briefly, we have two uh, brothers. There's, there's Avram Kassab and there's Nisim Kassab, the younger brother. We represented Nisim. They owned three parcels of land 
that adjoined each other in Jamaica, Queens. The land was basically vacant and undeveloped, and they were using it um, as a parking lot. Uh, the way the land was owned was two parcels were owned by a C-Corp, which was called Corner, and one parcel uh, was owned by an LLC called Mall. Both brothers had the same ownership interest in both entities. In um, C-Corp, Avram uh, was a 75% owner, and Nisim was a 25% owner. In LLC, Avram was a 75% member, and Nisim was a 25% uh, member. Under the operating agreement, the operating agreement was under the new, it was a post-1999 LLC, so it was under the new law. I put the word new in quotes. So no right of withdrawal. That's that's correct. Under the operating agreement, both brothers were managers. There were it said that the LLC will be managed by the members. There are only two members. It's the two brothers. There was also a contract which said that the parking lot revenue, notwithstanding the ownership interests, the parking lot revenue would be divided sixty percent, forty percent. You know, sixty percent in favor of Avram, forty percent of Nisim. Avram was definitely the moneyed party here. He had a lot of cash. He had a lot of assets. Nisim was under a lot of financial stress. And the way Nisim uh, supported himself basically was he ran the parking lot. He was the one who managed the parking lot. Certainly in, you know, towards the end of their relationship, the brothers did not get along. Um, Nisim was under a, a lot of financial stress, as I said. And what he wanted to do is he wanted to sell the parking lot. He wanted to sell the entire property, all three parcels, uh, which is probably worth some conservatively between 16 and 20 million dollars. This property is in downtown Jamaica? Yes, yes. And there were a lot of developers who were interested. For whatever reason, Avram did not want to sell. And Avram was always trying to buy his brother out, but at way below market values. I mean, dramatically below market values. And the two of them started fighting. And um, ultimately what happened, and, and, and you know, I, I say this, this, is, this was what was later found by the court, so I say in that context. You know, Avram accused Nisim of uh, stealing some of the, the fees from the parking lot. So he excluded him from the management of the LLC. He excluded him from the management of the, of the C-Corp. You, you know, I'll get to what Avram was doing, you know, later on. But basically, Nisim came to the conclusion that his brother was, was taking advantage of him and, you know, breaching duties to him. So again, to make a long story short, he hired us and we brought a petition in the, um, uh, it may have been two petitions, it probably was two petitions. In 2013, we brought a special proceeding in uh, the commercial division in front of Judge Kitsis and they were to either permit a withdrawal from the LLC and have a buyout of Nisim of his 25% in the LLC or alternatively to dissolve the LLC because, you know, there was deadlock, the brothers weren't getting along, the LLC couldn't be operated the way it was intended to. And the same thing with Mall, I'm sorry, with Corner, which was the C-Corp. We brought uh, a petition to dissolve it based on, you know, majority shareholder oppression of the minority and basically both statutory grounds for, ju for judicial dissolution and common law grounds. The, what makes this an interesting case is when we first analyzed the case, you know, we thought that um, dissolving uh, the corporation would, you know, might sort of be a harder lift. Uh, but we thought dissolving the LLC was going to be relatively easy because at the very least, the LLC's operating agreement had a provision, which is the first time I saw this provision was in 2013. Since then, I've seen the provision in other cases. And I guess I now know to be leery of it. There's a provision in the operating agreement that said that a member could withdraw consistent with the LLC law. Now, because this was a post-1999 LLC, if you look at, you know, quote-unquote, the new LLC law, 
what it says about withdrawal is you can't withdraw unless the operating agreement says you can. Sounds like some lawyer put this together using a form that predated uh, the, yeah, the 99 Amendment. I think, I think you're probably right. Uh, but as I said, I've seen this since then. Uh, and this is, this is, I guess, the first teaching point of this case and something for people to be wary about. You know, when me and my colleagues looked at this, you know, our view was, well, you know, the old contractual maxim, you have to give full effect to every um, provision and every word in an agreement. This was drafted after 1999. Presumably, uh, the lawyers know the law, and so this has to have some uh, meaning. And so our view is that this was awkwardly written, but basically what it meant is, you know, unless otherwise prohibited by the, unless otherwise expressly prohibited by the LLC law, you could withdraw. And Judge Kitsis disagreed with us. Uh, he wrote an opinion basically saying the opposite. He said the, you know, the operating agreement says go look at the LLC law. The LLC law says you can't withdraw unless it specifically says it. And the operating agreement does not specifically say it. So uh, he dismissed that claim. He also dismissed claim for dissolving the LLC. It is harder to get judicial dissolution of an LLC. You know, I think it requires a higher standard of proof with regard to oppression and with regard to inability. I mean, just having a deadlock, and I think even being oppressed is probably not enough. You have to really show you can't carry on the affairs of the LLC and on the pleadings. Or, or that it's failing financially. Right. And, and on the pleadings, you know, Judge Kitts has said that we hadn't alleged that, which is kind of interesting given what the trial judge later said about the whole situation. So uh, Judge Kitts has dismissed the claims to dissolve the LLC or to permit Nissan to withdraw from the LLC. We appealed that to the second department and it was affirmed. We lost the appeal. So in the meantime, we uh, proceeded with the claim to dissolve the C-Corp. In all this time that's passing by, your client is still barred my, from my client is management? Compl- my, compl- my client is completely barred from management. I mean, one thing, this is really just inside. And no distributions? Uh, no. I mean, one, one thing that uh, occurred is we uh, obtained, at the very beginning of the case, we obtained a TRO restraining everything, restraining uh, the majority uh, brother from, you know, transferring anything or, or moving funds. Part of that, he was supposed to give us financial information, and he failed to do that, and we ended up getting him held in contempt. I think there was a monetary penalty. I think it was like $25,000. Was that for using company monies to pay legal fees? Yes, yes. Yeah, I think I wrote about that. Yes, yes. I don't know if that ha- ultimately had an effect on the case. I don't think so. The judge sort of had a lot of uh, criticism to lay on everyone. So whether that tipped the scales or not, I have no idea. What ultimately happened, and again, what makes this case unusual, is what happened in the trial decision. We had a week-long trial in, in Queens, and, and, and I give the judge a lot of credit, not, that, not only because I'm happy that my firm prevailed, but we did the trial in the last week of May, first week of June, and it's just the beginning of August, and we got a decision. That is fast. Which, which is very unusual, especially a case like this, because it was you know, there were a lot of facts and it was, it was an unusual case. So during the trial, um, and I remember you asked me about this sort of offline, there was really no fight about uh, discount for lack of marketability. So wait a minute. So how does valuation enter the picture here before you get to the... Uh, uh, well, the way the valuation entered into the picture is, and I think I was clear about this when I described it, but I'll just emphasize this because it's an important point. The only business that the corporation does is it holds uh, real estate. It holds a piece of real estate. So it's basically fair market value of the real estate. And that, that was the only contested point. But, but there wasn't a buyout, number one. I mean, we know for the C-Corp under the statute that you sought dissolution under, there is the yes. majority could have elected to buy out the minority, yes. but that didn't happen. That did not happen. Okay. So you're nonetheless saying compel a buyout yes. Yes. If, you, if either dissolve or compel a buyout. Yes. 
Got it. As part of making that case, we had to show the value of the property and therefore the value of the 25%. We were concerned about arguments about arguments with regard to a uh, lack of marketability discount. So we got the resident expert on that, which is, you know, uh, Professor Mercer. And we had used him in the Chu case. And uh, for those who may not be familiar uh, with it, what was the Chu case stands for? Well, what? well, the, well the Chu case on its facts was almost the same kind of case. Is it? Case in Queens between two brothers who owned a company whose only purpose was to own commercial property. And sort of the big takeaway from the Chu case was that you do not have, you do not apply a marketability discount to uh, that kind of a real estate company because the view is, is that any vagaries of ownership are taken into account when you just look at the real estate prices. Right. There's, there's no reason uh, to do any other kind of the, analysis. The uh, exposure to the market is baked into the it's real exactly estate appraisal. Right. Now this um, this was a very disputed point. It, Chu was decided in 2014 by the appellate division, second department. The trial case I think was 2012, 2013. This was a very disputed point when we tried the case. My recollection is that I think we relied on two first department cases. I, I don't know if the law has really uh, changed a lot, but we were lucky that in this case, in the Kasab case, we're in the second department, and as far as we're concerned, I mean, it, it, Chu was ex- directly on point on this issue. But in any event, we had um, we had uh, Mercer come in and testify. There was no countervailing witness to him. The only countervailing testimony was on the actual value of the real estate. And to be honest, the numbers were not that different. Yeah, I think I looked at the post-hearing briefs, and uh, they the other side sort of took a legal approach on the on the discount for lack of marketability. They were citing cases where yeah. other cases where. You know, there's been a 25% discount, that kind of thing. But your point is that they did not put on an appraisal expert who would parry uh, Mercer's testimony on the... They did not put on a valuation. I mean, we had two kinds of expert. We had an appraisal expert. Again, the same person mm-hmm. we used in um, in CHU, uh, which is Henry Salman, who's someone I would recommend very highly. And we had a valuation expert. And, you know, not surprisingly, given his views about these things, Mercer's valuation was basically the same as Salman's. I mean, basically what Mercer said is whatever the real estate is. To get back, and, and you know, with regard to the briefing, I mean, my recollection about the cases was I think they basically argued what uh, our opponents in Chu argued, which is they cited cases which involved real estate, but were not the same kind of real estate entities. I mean, they, they cited cases involving real estate entities, which did more than just simply own real estate. Um, I don't think they cited anything directly in point. And to my mind, the only thing directly in point in the second department is true. So the case proceeded. Uh, the judge issued a uh, written opinion. What makes this opinion interesting um, are several things. First of all, you know, when you're doing a valuation decision, you're basing it on the value of the entity at the time of the attempt to withdraw or the attempt to file the, the petition. So that was 2013. I, I don't remember the month. However, in re- reaching his conclusions on whether there was a factual basis for dissolution, meaning whether there was a factual basis for finding a breach of fiduciary duty, the judge relied on post-petition uh, conduct. Our, our allegations were that Avram had breached his fiduciary duty by locking Nisim out of management. And the judge, the judge found that Avram had the right to do that. He said that Nisim had breached his fiduciary duty by taking money that he shouldn't have been taking. But then the judge said, on the other hand, you know, Nisim is still an owner, still a shareholder. In the, in the days after the uh, petition, in the, the time period after the petition was filed, uh, the judge concluded that Avram was skimming from the company, that he himself 
was taking revenue and not reporting it to Nisim. And again, this is a parenthetical point, but it's an interesting point that the way we established this is we hired private detective, a former NYPD detective, and he sat outside the parking lot on several days. Let me guess, counting cars. Yes, <laughs> counting cars. And then we compared it to the, uh, you know, the books pr- you know, produced for that same period, and there was discrepancy. I think my recollection was a 20 to 30% discrepancy. And from that, the judge extrapolated, if it happened on those days, likely it happened on others, and he said this was a breach of fiduciary duty by Avram. Based on Avram's breach of fiduciary duty, the judge held it was shareholder oppression, and he said that he was going to dissolve um, the C-Corp within 90 days unless uh, the majority brother, Avram, bought out the minority brother, and the judge set a valuation, which was basically the valuation uh, that our experts uh, provided. Now, what's interesting about this case is I spent a long time discussing how we tried to have our client either withdraw from the LLC or have the LLC dissolved. The judge said, interestingly enough, in his sort of decretal paragraph said not only was he conditionally dissolving the C-Corp, but that he was proposing that our client be bought out of the LLC and he gave a very specific value for that. And in a footnote, the judge writes, well, you know, this really is just a suggestion. I don't have the jurisdiction to do this because this claim was dismissed. Um, but, but I think, in essence, what the judge is saying is, look, this is a single business. There may be, you know, it's an unusual twist here that there are two entities running one business, but this is a single business. Uh, they're at loggerheads. They can't operate this together. You know, there should be a complete dissolution. Yeah. There's also a practical um, motivation to do it, if I understand that these two parcels, however many parcels they were, they're all contiguous parcels. Yes, so. Yes. In terms of their development value, there is uh, more value with all of those parcels you know, combined as opposed to splitting them up. Yes, is that, and, and, is that and, true? And, and, and that is completely true. And look, our, our assumption has always been, and I'm not you know, hiding the ball here, is that if, if we ended up getting one entity dissolved, we would hopefully settle the case with the sale of the whole thing because it doesn't make sense. It's not commercially viable to just operate the one parcel that the LLC owns. And, you know, frankly, we're going to go back to the judge probably with a new petition and, and try to dissolve the LLC. But, you know, first we need to get this case All right. dealt with. So but uh, I have one more twist. Uh, announcing your, your strategy yes. to, uh, to the world. Whoever, whoever's listening. Uh, there is one more twist, which happened today, actually literally two hours before I came to your office to do this podcast. You know, in the opinion, the judge notes that Nisim owed some debts to Avram. I think it was just like around $350,000. And those will have to be set off against whatever the buyout is. But um, there was a prior judgment against Nisim. At some point, he um, had a lawyer, then the lawyer left, and he was pro se. And for whatever reason, there was a default entered against him for a little over $100,000. Uh, the judgment was in favor, I don't remember the particulars, but I think, in essence, it's someone who's related by marriage to Avram, either directly or indirectly. Avram, the majority. Avram, older the majority, brother, majority. The, the older majority brother. You know, this judgment has been around for a while. I don't quite remember how long. Immediately after the bench order, the, the, the decision was issued in uh, the Kassab v. Kassab, uh, we heard from whoever was holding the judgment, and they basically said that they wanted to get the shares. They wanted to get Nisim's shares because they hadn't been paid their judgment. And they went to uh, Justice Edmead, who uh, was the judge presiding over that case, and they presented her with an order uh, that all of Nisim's shares should be canceled and new shares in uh, corner should be issued in favor of the judgment creditor. You know, we opposed 
that application. I have to say I'm very surprised that we were not successful because the logical way to handle this would be um, to just restrain the proceeds after the buyout. But instead, uh, Judge Edmead signed the order exactly as presented. Technically, I mean, I don't know if the order is you know, quite effective yet or not, but technically this judgment creditor, you know, would be the owner of these shares. We'll have to foreclose on them anyway. Y- yes. Um, I think the sheriff has to seize them. I think that's yeah. what the order says. Yeah. And then there has to be a sale. There are various procedural devices that we could you know, try to use to forestall this, but and or frankly, we could even try to show up at the auction. But we, we think the best thing to do is to just pay the judgment. So we're getting the judgment paid, and, and hopefully this will resolve it. I mean, you know, my concern is that this is a collusive, this is a collusive event, and they may not actually accept the judgment. As crazy that's the, the payment of the judgment. As crazy as that sounds, I mean, we, end, we may end up litigating more either in front of Judge Ed Mead or in Queens. But we'll see what happens. But it is it is an unusual twist to what has been an unusual case. And, and again, just to sum up, I mean, I think um, you know, I think the highlights of this case are number one. The wrinkle with the LLC law, you have to be careful using old boilerplate language uh, in an operating agreement when you have, you know, the relatively new LLC law. You know, I, I think it's becoming more established that there is no marketability discount, at least with regard to entities that solely hold, you know, real estate and don't do anything else. I think that, I don't know if that's quite black letter law yet, but I think at least in second department, we now have two cases. Uh, my belief is the second department based on Chu will affirm this decision, and um, you, we now have a decision where a judge, based on post-petition conduct, you know, held that there was sufficient events to dissolve uh, a corporation. And what I think is unique, the most unusual thing about this case, is you have a judge who did it in a situation where you have both parties held to have breached their fiduciary duties, which I think is very is very interesting. I don't agree with the judge's finding that Nissan breaches fiduciary duties, but that that's his finding. And, you know, assuming that finding is not changed uh, either, you know, by a post-trial motion or by the appellate division, again, I, I, I believe this decision will be affirmed and there'll be an interesting, uh, I think, you know, an interesting uh, wrinkle in the law. It really seems like you had to overcome some significant hurdles to get to the result that you got to. So I think that was a, a really great achievement for you. And what, what's really interesting about your story is that it's not over. No. It's still going on. I, I may be back next week. <laughs> and, and, and it sounds like I'm going to have more fodder for my blog uh, somewhere down the road and who knows. But you have some period of time left before Avram has to decide what he's going to do on the buyout. Yes. And, and look, in Chu, what happened is the majority brother in that situation bonded the appeal, which means uh, my recollections, I think he borrowed the money. I think he used the property as security. I don't remember if he did, but I think he did. The money was sitting in an account. It took the second department a year to decide. Unfortunately, and the second department's a great court, but unfortunately, it for whatever reason, it seems to take the second department longer than the first department to resolve these cases. And ultimately, the second department affirmed in that case. My guess is that this brother is either going to borrow the money and buy Nisim out, or he will bond and we'll, we'll have the appeal. And All right, well, we'll keep you posted. I can't wait to find out how the story ends. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me. Really thank appreciate it. Thank you so much it. for having me. That wraps up this episode of Business Divorce Stories. I want to thank Tony and Jeff for volunteering their time and sharing their experience and insights It's an interesting contrast between two stories involving two sets of brothers, in one case reaching a quick resolution out of court thanks to a collaboration between lawyers and the appraiser, 
and in the other case reaching a resolution, although it sounds like it's not quite over, after about four years of intense litigation. Anyway, thanks for listening, and if you haven't already, be sure to check out some of my prior interviews of some very smart business divorce professionals. And if you like the podcast, tell your friends and colleagues about it, and even better, give it a good review on iTunes so that others might find it as well. Till next time, this is Peter Mahler. Be well.